I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Um, we're going to be looking, I call this Law and Order and Love. Um, and we're going to be looking at, like I said in the intro, a fiercely, fiercely practical passage of Scripture. There are some things that are more theological and ideological in nature, and there are some things that it's just, here's what you do. Here is how you live. And this is, this is one of those passages, and so it is not complex, it is not difficult, um, but I will say <clears throat> that um, I was, I've been told that the wise preacher will keep politics out of a sermon, and that has been true for me for certainly uh, all of my preaching years. Um, so we're not going to be talking about politics, but we will talk about the government because that is what Paul brings to the table. Um, so we're continuing to discuss uh, matters that are essential to the faith, and Paul brings up um, the Christian's responsibility uh, to governing authorities. Um, and as we read this this morning, I want you to remember that this is a letter to Rome or the church at Rome. Um, Rome was a pagan nation. <clears throat> it was often ruled by Caesars who actually had a very loose grasp on sanity, much less justice or fairness or anything to do with actual good administration. A lot of these guys, well, there's just stories that I don't want to tell this morning, but one day when you want to hear funny stories, we'll talk about some of the Caesars, their horses, all the weird things that they had going on. The Caesars were weird, and they didn't really... Um, focus so much on making it fair for everybody so long as it worked for them. Justice was what the Caesar wanted it to be at any given time. And when Paul writes this letter, some Christians were already facing persecution uh, at that time. And so what Paul is about to say may seem like, oh, that's for an ideal society. But no, it was for the real society that people were living in. So Paul gives, a very, gives very important direction to Christians living in an unjust society about how to live and serve the Lord. So that's important. We need to remember that when Paul writes this, we've never had a president like Nero. We've never had a, a president that wanted to kill all the Christians. We've never had a president that said, okay, now you've got to worship me as God. We've never had that. And so we don't have the same kinds of injustice and we don't have to put up with the same kind of um, paganism that the Christians in Rome did. And Paul wrote what he wrote. He said what he said. And so we're going to see this and we're going to see that, that even in a situation that is less than ideal, we have to live uh, in, in very Christ-like ways. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Future citizens of heaven will, model, will be model citizens on earth, obeying authority, loving their neighbor, and abstaining from sin. All right, so let's read this passage. It's only 14 verses. They hit kind of hard, but it's only 14 verses, so let's get into it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who? Uh, would you have no fear to, of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must make or one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is near to us now, nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, so the first thing we're going to see is order through authority. That is how God has designed the world, as he has, he has given authority to establish order. But before we really dig into this text, let's talk about what it says and what it does not say for just a minute. Paul finishes up chapter 12 by telling the Romans, never take personal revenge. He talks about the fact that if someone wrongs you, that God gives vengeance, that God is the, is the one who is in charge of that, so that you are not to take personal vengeance. But a society in which no consequences ever existed would spiral into terrible violence pretty much immediately. We all know this. And so there is authority. God gives authority to uh, leaders or rulers on earth to judge those who do wrong. That is one of the primary functions of government. Those that do wrong must be punished here on earth. And so God has given authority to rulers to establish them to provide that punishment. And that is one of the main things that government is supposed to do is provide justice for its people. So, we must remember that the audience of this letter is the Church of Rome. They are in the epicenter of the largest empire the world had ever known at that time. If you thought that in Israel the shadow of Rome you know, was loomed large in the life of Jesus and the life of some of the other apostles, just imagine the shadow of Rome in Rome. If you are in the city of Rome and everything is about Caesar and everything is about what Caesar wants and what Caesar's doing, can you imagine how overbearing that would be? It would be similar to if you lived in Washington, D.C. We sit here in South Alabama, in Alabama, and we look at Washington and say, that's a world away, and what they're doing affects me, but not directly. But if you were to live in the capital city, obviously it would affect you more. It would be more a part of your life. And, and every day you would hear what's happened and how that might impact you. Well, that's how the Roman church was in that day. They lived in Rome. And so it would have, it would have, been, um, it would have been clear. Now, it would be fair to say that members... Uh, of this church, and, and really, I guess you would say members of any of the churches, they would have questions concerning how they should 
relate to an unjust government. They knew the word of God. They knew the law. They knew justice. They knew right from wrong. So how would you relate then to an unjust government, a government that, that rules differently for you know, a citizen than it would for a non-citizen, a, a government that upholds slavery, a government that takes you know, really basic low-level criminals and puts them in an arena and lets them be killed by animals or other prisoners. There are some really terrible things that the Romans did. So it might be fair for a, question, a Christian to ask, do we really have to listen to that? Do we really have to obey that? That might be fair for a Christian to ask. Um, but we also have to remember that many of the people that were in the church at this particular time, as Paul is speaking to them, whether it be the church at Rome or other places, they were converted from Judaism. Now, Jews hated to recognize a foreign king. They really hated to pay taxes to him. That was something they did not want to do at all. And so it's worth noting that Paul is saying this to at least some people that from, from their Judaism background, they knew that they didn't like dealing with heathen kings or paying their taxes. And Paul makes his position very clear. God is in control. Nobody secures a position of rulership without his consent, without God's consent. So ordered government, it's something of a divine origin. God gives that. God makes that. And so we have to recognize that Christians have to submit to the laws of mankind the way that they exist. So Paul stresses that rulers are not autonomous, that they do the will of God. He, call, he says that they're established by God, and he also calls them God's servants. It also, this indicates that rulers deserve a special dignity, but they also have a responsibility to do what God wants them to do. So understanding, uh, this understanding of the state, by the way, has been very problematic throughout the years. One commentator actually went so far as to say that no passage has caused more unhappiness and misery than this one. So you step into maybe the Middle Ages where there are kings, where there are monarchies, and the king said, I rule because God made me to rule. I was born to rule. But they're terrible rulers. They're unjust. They're selfish. They, they lead people into wars that don't need to be fought over petty differences and get the common people killed. You might say, well, well we shouldn't have to follow that king. We shouldn't have to obey that king. So let's talk just a little bit about what Paul is saying. Paul is talking in general terms about the Roman Christians, the Roman church, and how they were to respond to the government that was there. This, he's not making an ideal plan, and he's not dealing with every possible situation that might arise and when a Christian might have to respond differently. He's talking specifically to one group of people. This doesn't mean that there's never a time to make a change or to do anything else. So let's talk about some of the things that he really doesn't say. He gives no guidance on when it is right to rebel against tyranny. So in the first century, Rome, no one had ever demonstrated the ability to effectively rebel against that kind of a tyrannical government. There were two slave revolts but before Christ, no three, but one of them is so unmentionable that it doesn't even happen, but none of them were successful. None of them were successful. No one had had that kind of power. You don't see true revolution for really uh, over a thousand years after this point. So that wasn't a thing that people knew they could do. That wasn't a thing that was even part of it. It wouldn't have been in Paul's conversation. So is there a time to rebel against a tyrannical government? Maybe so, but this is not what Paul's addressing. He isn't dealing with that. 
He gives no guidance when there are two claimants to the throne. So if there is a dispute over power and one person says, I'm the king or I'm the ruler, and someone else says, I'm the king and I'm the ruler, Paul gives no guidance about this. And so there are some different times where Paul simply doesn't discuss things that maybe need to be discussed. He doesn't talk about the difference between legitimate and usurped power. There are so many things that he just doesn't talk about. Um, He also does not address a situation in which the government ask Christians or demands that Christians do something against the law of God. He doesn't address that. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that believers are supposed to obey God first. That's, we see that in the book of Acts chapter 5, but we also see it in the life of Paul. Paul had definitely shown that his first obedience was to God, but, but here's, the, here's the key. Here's how he stays consistent with his word. When he engaged in what would be considered peaceful civil disobedience when they came to arrest him when they came to arrest him he went when they beat him he took a beating when they imprisoned him he held out his hands for the shackles i mean he submitted even though he had broken what they considered laws he submitted to that authority when the time came and that's a very powerful and important example but paul knew that rome could be or that any government but rome specifically could be unjust He had been imprisoned. He had been flogged many times. He had suffered at the hands of these Romans when all he ever did was preach Christ. And so we know that Paul was aware of the injustices and and, and the harm that could be. In fact, every Christian ought to be aware that governments can be unjust because really it was an unjust action that paved the way for Jesus himself to be crucified. We should know that. Also, in a little touch of irony, Paul himself acted unjustly before he was converted when he went and tried to pursue Christians to persecute them. So he knew what he was talking about when he says, obey the government. So that's important. We need to put all of that into light when we say this. So having laid a little bit of that found work, let's talk about America for a minute because we are Americans. And so what does that mean for us? How do we live in America? We are a country that was founded after a rebellion. And so we are a people who had a king. We rejected that king. We cast off that because we said that he was a tyrant. And so we became a new nation. And in that nation, who are we to submit to? Well, if you, if you study civics, you find that in America, it isn't the president that rules. It isn't Congress that rules or the Supreme Court that rules, but it's the Constitution. And so that is, and it's amendments. That is the law of the land for us. Each person that serves in government is a representative or an enforcer or interpreter of that constitution. So you've got legislation that makes laws. You've got the executive branch that, that enforces laws. You've got the judicial branch that interprets laws. But that's the reality for us. The constitution is what it is. And so we must be submissive to what the Constitution says. So people might say, but Christians don't always submit to the government because they protest sometimes too. So what does that say? Is it ever right for a Christian to protest? Well, we've got one recent example. Roe versus Wade was a unconstitutional decision by a previous Supreme Court that our current Supreme Court cast out. But in the meantime, Christians were pretty much consistently protesting that all along. That's just one example. But Christians do still, even in America today, we do still have a voice and we can exercise that when we believe that we should. 
Now, I would suggest to you that a Christian's time is much better spent evangelizing than it is protesting, but there may be a time when Christians have to enter the political arena. But for the most part, our focus, our goal, our work should be to proclaim Jesus Christ. And we submit to the government. Whenever something happens, we simply have to submit. Now, hopefully this little discussion helps us to understand a little bit more about what we are about to dig into. But let's dig into it for just a minute. Paul makes it clear that every person is to be subject to governing authorities. This is, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now, that's not preaching, that's reading. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> we are to obey, either to obey the laws that, that the land has, or submit to the punishments. So tomorrow, if Congress was to announce that they had just passed a law that says all churches are effectively shut down, does that mean that we stop having church and worshiping? No, that's not what that means. But that means that when they come to arrest us, we say, give us our bracelets. Because we have to submit to that authority. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. So yes, they, they may tell us what we cannot do. We may read scripture and find that we must do what the government says we cannot do, but we still submit to the authority. That's, that's what Paul's saying here, and that's the example that he gave. There were places where he shouldn't preach the gospel, but he did. And he got arrested, and he got flogged, and he, he got transported to Rome to stand before Caesar and all of it because he was preaching Christ. And so we have to recognize that there may be a time where we have to submit to the authority, not necessarily obey the law. Those two things are distinct and different. So this is why Paul was willing to submit to punishment because he knew that he had to submit to the authority. So all authority flows from God and should be respected by his children. We have to be the ones that respect the authority. We don't have to agree with everything that we see in Washington. We don't have to agree with everything we see happen in Montgomery. We don't have to agree with everything that is political. We simply have to submit to authority. That's what Paul is telling us here. Resisting the authority of the government is paramount to resisting the authority of God. God is the one that established them. You might go down a list of presidents and say, well, God got it right here, God got it right here, but he's been getting it wrong for the last 30 years. Whatever, however you want to say that, God doesn't get it wrong. God doesn't get it wrong. Even when we wonder, why is that right? It is God's plan, and God did give that authority, and so we have to recognize that. So we risk God's own judgment anytime we resist the authority that he's established in general terms, Paul tells the Romans that rulers are a problem only for those who break the law. And isn't that true? Isn't it mostly true? There are exceptions to the rule, aren't there? There's always exceptions to every rule. But that doesn't mean that the rule is pointless. The rule is, if you obey the laws, you won't have to worry about the authorities. If you break the laws, you will. How many times have you been driving along and you've seen somebody do something really crazy and you're like, man, I wish there was a police officer here at that moment, at that time. We saw it once today. We, we had somebody passing that wasn't even clear or safe to pass and we had to stop so that they could get back in their lane and not hit us. We see these things and we say, man, why, why aren't the police here? Because we know we're doing right and we want the police to hold other people accountable. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. They're not a network that can be everywhere. But what we do know is that those that break the laws, they have to worry. Should a good Christian need a radar detector in their car? Now, I'm not going to meddle any more than that. I'm just going to say that, and then y'all make your own decisions about that. But, but should a good Christian need a radar detector in their car? So when we think about this, 
what we think about is the fact that if we obey God's law and the laws of man that do not conflict with God's law, we should never fear the authority of the government. If they do come for us because God's law contradicts their law, then we should be willing to submit. Even nations that don't claim to be Christians, they still enforce some of the Ten Commandments, some of God's laws. You take, for example, don't kill, um, not so much a, a adultery anymore, but some of the Ten Commandments, they actually do enforce those things. And that's just evidence that God is establishing this authority and using it for His good even when they do not recognize Him. So here's, I think, this is the point for this. Regardless of what the government does, it is our responsibility to display a Christ-like attitude in all things. So good civil conduct displays the character of Christ and leads to a peaceful existence. There will be times, and those are the exceptions, there will be times where that doesn't work out for us, that it doesn't bring peace. But the majority of our problems, is it the government that causes it or is it us that causes it? Usually us. Now, at the end of this first section here, Paul talks about something that I don't think any of us like. I would be hard-pressed to believe anybody just gets excited about paying taxes. Oh, boy, it's April again. I get to give away some of my money that I earned. None of us really feel that way, right? You, you, you walk down the aisles of the store and it says 99 cents. Well, back in the day, it said 99 cents, and you're like, okay, I got a dollar. You're not getting it anymore, right? It's seven, you know, a dollar oh seven, dollar ten, depending on where you are, maybe even more. But the reality is we have to pay taxes. Um, there, so much so that someone once said, there's only two certainties in this life, death and taxes. And we all have to pay taxes. Um, it seems unlikely, again, that anybody likes paying taxes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Jews, they had the objection, this is a sinful society. We don't want to finance that. But I would suggest to you that instead of us playing armchair politician and saying, well, they're using my money to do this and they're using my money to do that, let us take a whole different attitude, completely different attitude. When we pay taxes, let us consider it a service to the Lord. Just be faithful, do what you're supposed to do, and let God take care of the things that He takes care of. Do we believe the Word of God? Do we believe that God appoints the rulers? If we do, then we have to believe that God is going to have some control over what they do and what they do not do. And so sometimes you're going to see a news headline that says the government is going to do this, and you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of money to do something I wouldn't agree to. It's not really our concern. That falls into the category of what God can do. I use this phrase far too often, but it's far too often true. That's above my pay grade. Whatever God chooses to allow the governments to do, that's above our pay grade. That's not what we're in charge of. We've got to worry about our own life. We've got to worry about what we're supposed to do. So let's just consider taxes a service to the Lord and move on with it from there. So now let's look at the law of love. So after discussing our civic duties, Paul turns his attention to much more personal relationships. Uh, and he begins with a command that probably is a lot more practical than it might seem at the first. So verse 8 starts with no I mean, owe no one anything. Um, and so we shouldn't owe people things. Now, he's not talking about financial inst institutions that loan money to buy a house or to buy vehicles. He's talking about person-to-person -person relationships. He's talking about situations that might change things between brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would say this, and this is in your notes, one of the fastest ways to destroy a relationship is an unpaid debt. That hangs in the air. 
If you owe somebody money and you can't pay them, that hangs in the air. If they owe you money, you may be willing to forgive that if they would ever say anything about it, but it hangs in the air. It, is, it, it damages a relationship. It always does. And so don't be in debt to people. One of the keys um, of good teaching is to take things that are complicated and make them more simple. And so what does Paul do next? He says, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so he goes through and he talks about some of the commandments. And, and Jesus did the very same thing. He said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In doing these two things, you will fulfill the whole law. Now, if we were to, and I'm not going to, but if we were to take every command given in the Bible and go through it today and explain each one of them, we'd be here the rest of the day. And when we left, none of us would know what to do because there's so much. That's why Paul makes it simple. So along with Jesus, or just as Jesus taught, we can fulfill the whole law by following the law of love. Love one another. Show that love. Be willing to take second place. Be willing to be the one that steps down, be the one that serves, be the one that goes that extra mile. Is there an argument worth winning? Very occasionally there is. But most arguments, just be honest with yourself, are they worth winning or is there a better way? Usually they're not. Usually an argument is not worth winning. Usually there's a way to step down. Be the one that steps up to help. Be the one that steps up to serve. Be the one that gives when everyone else is taking. Be that one that shows love. That seems to be clear about what Paul is teaching. Now as we kind of end this, um, it may seem uh, that when we look at verse 11 and following, it may seem that Paul is telling his people to wake up, be sober, be vigilant, be alert. And, and that, that is a command in the Bible, and that's something that's said. We're told Jesus is coming soon, so we've got to be ready. Um, so that is definitely part of it. But in this particular case, Paul is telling his readers to cast off actions that they might have done in darkness or that are typically done in darkness. And so the message is more like this. Jesus is coming soon, and we do not want to be caught living in the sins of darkness. Because that's where he goes with this. He isn't talking so much about watching for this sign or watching for that sign. He starts talking about some pretty rough sins and saying, don't be a part of it. Don't be in the mix of this. So we get a little sense of the old Roman culture, especially in the city of Rome, when he makes his list. So everything that Christians do, this, is, this seems to be the sense of what Paul's saying, Everything that Christians do should be so appropriate that they could be done in the daylight in the full view of public. There's some things you may not want to do in public, but the reality is everything that we do, every conversation that we have, every interaction that we have with other people, everything that we do with our personal business, everything that we do at work, everything that we do, we should not have a problem doing it in full daylight in view of everybody. If there's something that you would change, if your supervisor walked in, if there's something you would change, if your grandmother was sitting there, that's what I use with the kids all the time. The kids sometimes will come up with a word in class and they'll say something and I'm like, don't say that. And they're like, why not? I said, would you say it if your grandmother was sitting there? Mm, no. 
So don't say it to me then. And so that, that sometimes wakes us up just to think, wait a minute, everything is before an audience. Everything is before God. And so we should do everything we do as if it is in daylight in full view of public. That's how we should view things and think about things. But I will say this, even though we get this taste of the, the old Roman way where he, he, he mentions, um, he mentions the orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, he, quarreling and jealousy, he mentions those things and you think, oh, well, that's, that's Rome, that's the way that that was. Well, the days of a committed monogamous relationship as the norm in America is coming to an end. Whether we want to admit that or not, when we look at the direction of morals in America, it's not holding steady. It's certainly not getting better. It is getting worse. And so the things that you might would read about in your history books that the Romans did or whatever, you're going to read them about them in the newspaper. Some of these things are already happening. You know, it really does seem like everybody's addicted to something, whether it be, you know, an alcohol abuse or some other substance. Everybody's Something. I mean, we're constantly chasing kids down there using these vapes in school. They're so young, but yet they're already addicted to this stuff. And we know that it continues on. That people have given up on living a life that is clean, a life that is pure. People have. They're living in darkness. The command that Paul is giving to Christians is come out of the darkness. Come out because you're already out and take the darkness off and put on the light. He talks about the armor of the light. But then he goes even a step further. Look at verse 14. This is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible because it is, again, so fiercely practical. It's easy to understand, but it is hard to obey. By the way, if you are a fan of Augustine, Augustine, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, however you want to call him, this is the verse that broke his heart and led him to surrender to Jesus Christ. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? That doesn't just mean externally. That means in our thoughts. That means in our feelings. That means in our deep-seated emotion, in our heart. We live out the life of Jesus. Just like he says in another place, in another way, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's what we are to do. That's how we are to live. Surrendered fully to Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The second part may be even more powerful when we consider it. It's definitely challenging because it helps us to understand how sin can regain power in our lives. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We should never leave anything in place in our lives that may cause us to sin. Each of us, we face different temptations, different areas of weakness. It's not my place to stand up here and make a list and say, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this, because it's going to be different for each and every one of us. But what I would say is examine your heart. Are there things in your life that could cause you to sin or lead you to sin? That's what we have to stay away from. So as you examine your life, you may think, well, that friend of mine, I probably don't need to be around that friend because that's when 
this sin begins to tempt me again. This place that I sometimes like to go, that place, it tempts me. It brings me down. It leads me back into sin. Certain situations that we get into sometimes. You know, it could be as simple and innocent as going to a ball game. You know, some people can watch a ball game and say, wow, that was a good ball game or oh, that was a terrible ball game. But some people, it becomes this emotional thing. And it becomes something that they no longer can control themselves. They get angry or they get, they get terribly upset or whatever it is. In those situations, maybe ball isn't part of your life anymore. And I could make example after example, and we could go as deep as we want to in that. But I am assured that the Holy Spirit is talking to each of us and saying, you know that thing? That thing is a provision. Because what that means is that you're leaving something in place just in case you want to go back to sin. Just in case. It's like an alcoholic with an emergency, whatever, whiskey. It, it, that, that's, that's what it's like. It's like a, uh, an ex-smoker that's got one extra pack of cigarettes just in case. It's like a, you know, a reformed substance abuse with, with one last, whatever they call it, drug. Whatever that is, for us, we can't be there. We can't be like that. We can't make that provision. Hang on to that one last little thing that might open the door for sin again. Make no provision for the flesh. So I would say to you that this is powerful, but it is hard to do. It is hard to do because probably one of the biggest things is one of the things I said first and didn't really say so much about it, but it might be a friendship. It might be some relationship that just leads you down the wrong path. Those are tough. That's hard. You can clean your house out. You can get rid of things that might cause you problems. But what about relationships? A relationship that drags you down, that could be very painful to do. But Jesus is worth it. So become the life of Jesus. And don't make any provision for going back to the old way. So in conclusion, these practical passages, they're, they're real easy to conclude. It's real simple. We are commanded to submit to the authority of the government. Period. You don't have to embellish. That is what it is. We are commanded to pay what we owe to the government. Ouch. I mean, period. We have to do that, right? We have to do these things, even if they're not enjoyable. We are commanded to obey the laws of God. Very simple. We are commanded to show love to all people. So, there's no shortcuts in the Christian life. We must submit, pay, obey, and love at all times. That is what this message is. We have to do that. And we have to do that because we are representing God to a world that doesn't really know Him. This world will point at us and say, hey, you're not a very good Christian because you do this or you do that. So let's make sure we don't give them that ammunition. Let's live the way Christ would live. Let's submit to the government. Let's obey His laws. Let's do what we have to do and in all things show love. That is the gist of this whole passage. So we've got to be obedient to Him. We've got to serve God. So sometimes you're going to have to obey something that you don't like. You have to do something that you don't like that you know is part of obedience. Let it be to the Lord. Is there anything we wouldn't do for God after the way He saved our souls? Hopefully the answer is a very quick no. No, there's nothing I wouldn't do for God. So pay your taxes for God. Obey the government for God. Love other people for God. Make it a service to God then you can do it joyfully. 
when we do it joyfully, people will know there's something different about us. They'll ask a question, and there's our opportunity to tell them about Jesus and the joy that he brings in our lives. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much for the time to gather together. We thank you for your word that shows us how we should live. Lord, the the phrase easier said than done comes to mind. It's easy for me to stand up here and tell everybody what we should do. It's easy for me to write a sermon and say what we should do. What is difficult is actually applying these scriptures to our lives. I pray that you help us to do that. Let us take it seriously. When we walk out of these doors, I pray that we are on mission to obey you. Let us at least get the love down part. Let us get that down right. Let us show love. Let us be loving people. Let us walk in this world like Jesus and care about our fellow man. Whether they be Christian or not, let us show that love and compassion that we can. Because Lord, at least in that, we know for sure we are reflecting your character. Make us obedient, Father. Make us faithful. And bring us back here again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.